Elvis, 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 Hello and welcome to Elvis Has Left the Movies, a podcast dedicated to the cinematic legacy of Mr. Elvis Aaron Presley, journeying through all 31 of his feature films. On top of the movie talk, we'll also be exploring the bigger picture as far as the culture of those times as seen through a present-day lens. I'm Mathieu Langlois, or Matt for simplicity, and I am joined in this endeavor by Morgan. Hello, everybody. Uh, as you've heard, my name is Morgan. I have zero credentials to be talking about this many Elvis movies in such short a time period. But you know what? suck it <laughs> yep that's uh, right we're gonna do it <laughs> the podcast with attitude that's us that's right you've got it so today's movie we're gonna be talking about is king creole and there's a lot of cultural touchstones that i'm gonna talk about today and matt is gonna let us know all the nitty-gritty details and the fun facts of king creole but before we get to that, we have some things to talk about our last movie that we forgot to mention. Yes, as always, uh, we're going to get better at this and eventually we'll be able to cover everything within the episode that the movie is dedicated to. But there was one specific scene in Jailhouse Rock that we did not touch upon that was maybe one of the best scenes in the movie. It was absolutely the best scene in the movie. Confirmed, the best scene in the movie. Absolutely. Better than watching Elvis getting whipped was watching Elvis walk into a crowd of people talking about jazz. Yes. And the absolute... The, like they absolutely nailed the lingo and the language that jazz cats at the time used to sit around and discuss with. So him and his ladybird, she walks him through this room of all these fancy hoity-toity people. It's it's her parents' house. She's bringing him back home to meet the folks, and the folks are having this shindig. Yeah, <laughs> I actually have and... the transcript right here, if you don't mind. Oh me. my god, yes, please. So he gets in there and of course they're like, oh, how long were you in the pen? Because, you know, he talks about being in jail. Yeah. He was like, oh, uh, one to 10, I did 14 months. So that confirms that timeline as well that we were wondering about. Right. Uh, and then the mother is like, August, why don't you put on that new record by Stubby Reitmeyer? <laughs> I'm sure Mr. Everett is interested in jazz music. It's his profession. Righto. And then they play the music. And then the rest of the guests Just are now... Just cue, cue the scene, too. Like, the, they really nailed the composition with, with how they used the camera in this because they're just yes. like, and now it's time to hear from the people who talk about jazz. They're all, like, in their little semicircle. And then they're just like, I think Stubby has gone overboard with these altered cores, don't you? And the other person's like, I agree. <laughs> Brubeck and Desmond have gone just as far with dissonance as I care to go. And another guest says... <laughs> nonsense have you heard lenny tristano's latest recording he reached outer space and then the woman's like someday they'll make the whole cycle and get back to pure old dixieland <laughs> and the last per the last comment is i say atonality is just a passing phase in jazz music oh my god okay so so let's just back this up here i'm a big jazz cat and i'm gonna explain Go ahead. why this is funny because that's what's gonna nail it home for the crowd is explaining why the joke is funny so um in jazz louis armstrong is the guy that made jazz and when they talk about when in the scene where they're like i think one day jazz is just going to get around back to its truest form dixieland what they're talking about is is new orleans style jazz which was the beginning of jazz so that's what that joke means and i'm really surprised that that they like it's it New Orleans style 
jazz like in its beginning is a lot of the time when you talk to jazz cats they're like yeah yeah talking about jazz talking about jazz and then you're like but louis armstrong always got to go back to the beginning always got to get back and one day jazz is going to be just like that again and it's going to be great and Mm -hmm. oh it's always the same thing (laughs) just they really just nailed the dialogue yes because then so this this whole exchange happens, and then the mother, of course, turns to Elvis, and she says, "What do you think, Mister Everett?" And he says, <laughs> <laughs> "says Lady, I don't know what the hell you're talking about." <laughs> and then he just runs out of the house. Oh, it's so good. Oh my God, Lady, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, it was really great, and I'm sad that we forgot to include it in the last episode because it. I think, I think all the time we spent on Elvis getting whipped and the gay pole dancing really could have used a break for us to talk about this ridiculous jazz joke that they wrote in. Because it's, yeah, it's like a genuinely like, it's written well and it is funny on purpose and it, it works yes, perfectly yeah. for what it was trying to do. Every Elvis movie every now and then has something like that. It has a scene <laughs> where it's not much, but it's just a little. And in fact, King Creole has a joke like that and I'm excited to talk about it. Perfect. It's a really small joke, but it's hilarious. So Matt, tell us about King Creole. Give us the give us the deets. Give us the stats of today's Elvis movie. Right. So this is movie number four. And I'm actually, I'm glad we brought up the jazz song because we were talking about New Orleans. And this is where That's right. King Creole is set. It's set in New Orleans. And the synopsis for this movie says, a troubled youth singing sets New Orleans rocking. And then he's got a sweet girl to love him and nightclubbers cheering. But it seems he'll have to shake off his past and head for the top. Will a mobster in his man trap mall snare him in a life of crime? I don't know who wrote this, but some good like <laughs> film noir patois yeah so this was released july 2nd 1958 uh this is a paramount picture so we're back to paramount it's the first time we have a, a returning studio the one that he had actually signed the contract with you know to make multiple movies right uh do we want to get into the whole cast and crew right off the bat or do we want to get into the plot yeah let's do it let's get right to it the cast and crew might as well because this is probably the best i mean we haven't watched all 31 yet but as far as the people behind the camera and behind the scenes, this is like top notch. We've got the director, Michael Curtiz, who is the guy who directed goddamn Casablanca. So No shit. Yeah, he won Best Director for Casablanca in 1942. You know, it was so funny. I was watching this movie and just looking at some of the compositions, I kept getting a Casablanca feeling. Yeah. And like people will say that. I get that feeling because it's a black and white movie. Let me tell you, man, I've seen enough crime noir black and white movies that I can tell Casablanca apart from, you know, any old silver screen stars or whatever. Sure. And uh, you you get the sense like you there was something in the compositions for sure in the shots, especially I I remember when uh, Elvis wakes up on the couch Mm -hmm. on the uh, on the beach and he's staring up and he sees the Ronnie there. That was really for some reason i was like this reminds me of casablanca and yeah the fact that it is this is the final black and white elvis movie he only made three yes uh and this was a totally like this was on purpose this is michael curtis uh decision to you know really emphasize the noir aspects of the story and he just felt that that was the way to go because they could have made it in color they had the budget but yeah it's it's better for the fact that it is a nice black and white and the cinematographer we can thank for that as well is Russell Harlan, who did the cinematography the year before he did Witness for the Prosecution, which was the Agatha Christie adaptations. Wow. Really good courtroom drama and went on to do an even objectively maybe better courtroom drama, To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962. Wow. 
So he knows what he's doing. He's got some good yeah. stuff. And we usually we haven't brought we haven't talked about them in the past, but I want to also highlight the writers because I mean I feel we we're doing them a disservice to not bring them up because they also have true. You know, they're important to bringing the whole thing together. Yeah, who else am I going to make fun of for Elvis's poor dialogue? Sure, there you go. <laughs> so, I'm just kidding. Just being unnecessarily harsh. Actually, Elvis did a great job in this movie. Yes. He did. He did a really good job. Unequivocally, this is probably his best performance. And he personally felt that way as well. Yeah, I think there was probably something to the fact that this character seemed to really suit Elvis. Mm -hmm. I think we sometimes forget that Elvis was still pretty young when all this stuff was going down. Yeah. And this was probably the first character that he got to play with that he actually could resonate with to some degree. You know, I don't know much about Elvis's young life if he was actually hard pressed as a youth or not but certainly you can tell he was probably involved in an environment that was mm -hmm. and um, took to this role really well as a result of it yes and there's always as as always there's that like there's meta aspects that we can because he's a young man who's being pulled in all kinds of directions people are trying to tell him right what he's supposed to be and then you know it's it's all there I want also to mention that Elvis's singing in this movie is the embodiment of a particular style of singing that he's known for but in a lot of the other movies that we've watched previous to this I don't know it seems like in this one in King Creole he really hams it up with that really Elvis style of vocal sure and I thought that was really interesting too to see I wonder if it wasn't because he was comfortable enough with the character to be able to you know put some more of himself into it right it's possible and there's also there's the aspect of this was the last movie so he got drafted to the army and we're going to get into that next movie for <laughs> sure we'll go all the way in but they actually he was able to to ask for a 60-day deferment so that they could finish shooting this yep and there's also that thing in the back of his mind i want to think that he's like i'm going to be going away for like at least over a year so i really want to put my all into this project here because who knows after uh, that's all over if I, you know, can come back to everything. It says here 57 he was drafted. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because, yeah, this was shot, uh, I think they finished shooting like March of 58 or something. And he was in it for two years, it looked like. Yes. Uh, but right, I was about to talk about the writers. So this actually has some pretty good source material for once. This is based on a novel called A Stone for Danny Fisher by Harold Robbins that was a pretty big bestseller. Yes. And in the book... The Danny Fisher character is an underground boxer. And it's funny that they changed it to better suit Elvis, but Elvis would get his boxing movie and we'll get to it eventually. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to rewatch that movie too. But in this one, yeah, he's like, it's it's the, t the tale is all this time of like, oh, they tell me that you can sing, kid. Well, why don't you prove it? And then he belts out an Elvis tune and they're like, oh, okay, fine. I guess you got me. You can sing. Yeah. But the writers who adapted the book, uh, we got two of them. We got Herbert Baker. Mm -hmm. who did a lot of TV writing. But in fact, Double Duty, he also wrote the screenplay for Loving You, which was the second movie. Oh, I see. So I get to retroactively give him credit for that. Nice. Because we more or less, we like that one more than, you know, Love Me Tender, so that was good. Yes. Yeah, Loving You was pretty okay. Uh, and then there's Michael V. Gazzo, who actually started as a playwright and then went on to be like a pretty well-known character actor. He's actually in godfather part two. Oh, really as who he plays uh frankie panagelli but he wrote a play called a hat full of rain in 1955 and that was adapted into a movie yeah and then uh he has an uncredited part his character is literally named bit so it's like literally a bit part oh i see and on the waterfront from 1954 
But yeah, he wrote the screenplay for this with Herbert Baker. So that's an interesting collaboration. Hmm. And I think it uh, worked out pretty good. So tell us, uh, is that it for the staff? For now. I think for the crew, we'll talk about the cast after. Yeah. If we want to. So this movie, King Creole, is basically about um, Elvis Presley playing Danny Fisher, which how do we feel about the nomaker Danny Fisher for Elvis Presley? I think it's a close second. Sure. I think Deke Rivers is still my favorite. That's fair. But Danny Fisher, I'm going to put in second place. I will agree. So That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so Danny Fisher is a young kid who is trying to graduate high school. And uh, his mom passed away. He lives with his father and his sister in New Orleans. And his father didn't take his wife's death very well and hasn't been able to keep down a job. Mm-hmm. And so Danny Fisher is uh, trying to fill the role as man of the house by doing work and and trying to get the bills paid and all that stuff. And it's implicated his ability to have a responsible relationship with his school life. And so the staff at the school keep delaying his ability to graduate. Yes. So he is two days away from graduation. He's working at a bar. And while he's there, a couple of friends of Maxie Fields are in the bar. And Maxie Field happens to be this guy around town who kind of has everybody in his pocket, more or less. And one of the girls at the bar is getting manhandled by these guys. And uh, Elvis does a little song and dance for them to try and chill him out. And they're not having it. And they try to start rough up the girl. And of course, Elvis got to come in and be a white knight. So that's how Maxie Fields uh, finds out about Elvis. And he escapes with this girl and brings her to school with him and then gets her to set off in a taxi. And part of the reason why he's not able to graduate this year is because one of the boys picked a fight with him over this chick that he had hanging out with him. And for that reason, the teacher was like, I'm not letting you graduate. Mm-hmm. So not a preamble just to get the movie freaking started. But, you know, I know. So Elvis goes home and fights with his dad because his dad finds out that he hasn't graduated and Elvis walks out on his dad and says, whatever, man, I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to go make a buck is what he says. Mm -hmm. At least someone around here has got to, you know, be able to hold a job. It's like, yeah. And through one way or another, he runs into Maxie Fields at the bar that he works at and Maxie Fields says, my dame says, you know how to sing, boy. Let's hear you sing, boy. And so Elvis does a little song and dance. And while he's doing a little song and dance, the guy that owns King Creole, the nightclub, just what the movie is named after, Mm -hmm. hears Elvis and is like, you can come sing in my joint, kid, and I'll give you money, 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 blah, blah, blah. And Elvis is like, A-okay, I'll go make some money, blah, blah, blah. And this guy, they have a good time. Elvis is singing. Everything's going fine. But Maxie Field is mad because Elvis was supposed to come sing at his bar. But Elvis doesn't want to work with Maxie Field because he's a bad guy. So Maxie Field is mad and making things difficult for Elvis by getting his goons to go out and beat people up or something. Uh, I don't know. There's this guy and he's like, oh, I heard your father works at the drugstore or whatever. And Elvis is like, yeah, and the guy's mean to my dad and whatever. And he's like, Maxie Fields can like make all that go away or whatever. So just come out and hang out and whatever. And Elvis is like, I'm not going to work for you. Leave me alone. And then they're like, okay, we're going to steal money from the guy that your dad works for for some reason. They never really, I think, ironed it out clearly why they were going to steal this money and how that was supposed to help Elvis and his dad? I think, well, because they, 
money is the solution apparently in this. right you know, it's yeah. the underground money is what makes everything go around so they were supposed to rob the boss of this drugstore that Elvis's dad works at, but instead they rob Elvis's dad and they beat him up and he gets really sick and uh, he's got to have a big expensive surgery and they don't have money for it. And then Max Fields sends a doctor to do this surgery on the house. And then Elvis is spending all this time trying to pay back Maxie Fields and then Maxie Fields is like, come over here and fuck my girlfriend, if you please. And if you do that, then I'm going to charge you some money and then you'll have to work with, for me to pay it off. And then Elvis is like, I love you, bad girl, because you're so wanton and bad and you're just the love of my life for some reason. And keep in mind, Elvis has like a nice girlfriend during this time. Well, yes, I was going to. That's the whole B plot. Let's let's take a pause. Let's put a pin there. Okay. Uh, just to because you more or less have hit most of the points. There's just a few things I'll highlight from the top. When he first defends uh, Ronnie's honor, you know, yeah, he like breaks these bottles and he po- he po- points them at dudes. And he goes, now you know what I do for an encore, which is a great line. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, then they escape. So there's, yes, and then before he actually starts working for Maxi, he, there's this local group led by Shark, of course, there's a guy named Shark. Yeah, there's a guy named Shark. And he joins up with them and they, they're like, we're going to rob this five and dime. So the plan is you sing a song and distract the customers while we, you know, take some money. And uh, the lady behind the counter at the five and dime is the nice girl. Uh, yeah Nelly. she notices yes Nelly. yeah lets him get away with it and she's like i don't know why for some reason i'm just massively in love with you for no goddamn reason and i'm about to throw all my life and dignity away for some fucking guy i think is a two-bit punk but whatever so it's elvis elvis invites her to come and party and he's like come on into my totally vacant hotel room that i told you we were having a party in with a bunch of people big red flags no good right and she's like i thought i was a good girl and is this the only way i can see you and blah 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 and then she takes off and her and elvis presley do a little fucking tap dance throughout the rest of the goddamn movie that's a total waste of time i don't know why she's there honestly no offense to the actress i'm just like we're gonna talk about women's roles in this movie and i'm gonna sure pick that one apart and we're gonna talk about her specifically because there's hers is the most interesting outside of her acting career story oh interesting yeah so um you know, so Elvis is involved with this guy, Maxie Fields, and uh, he gets Elvis to sign his name onto a document, and Maxie Fields is going to put that signature on whatever document he wants or whatever. And so he's, like, all bummed out, and then Maxie Fields is talking to Elvis's dad because Elvis's dad is upset because Elvis's sister is dating the guy that gave Elvis the job at the King Creole and he doesn't want his daughter to get married to that guy so he came to Maxie Fields to try and smooth everything out and then uh, Maxie Fields is like you can't I'm not gonna do nothing and your son works for me and he's like well I don't want my son to work for you and he's like well he's gonna work for me and then the guy that robbed him walks into the room and Elvis's dad is like that's the guy that robbed me and Maxie feels like that's guys works for me and Elvis's dad's like I'm gonna go to the police and he's like you can't go to the police because your son was involved in the robbery and so Elvis's dad knows that he's been acting like a hoodlum and is all ashamed of Elvis and doesn't want to speak to him and then Elvis goes to Maxie Fields and is like boohoo my daddy doesn't love me anymore and now I'm gonna beat you up and in the process him and Ronnie escape after beating up Maxie Fields and they go on the run and Elvis 
takes off in one direction and Ronnie takes off in the other. Elvis gets stabbed in an alleyway and then kills a dude. And that they and they never address that part. They never even talk about the part where Elvis fucking kills a dude. <laughs> that is a, definitely a plot hole. Like there's there was murder. Yeah, like they stop. He stops a guy. Yeah, no no consequence there. No consequences. So you know. Anyway. Oops. <laughs> I guess I guess after Jailhouse Rock, they just decided to stop trying to put Elvis into jail. <laughs> Let's not do that again. They thought. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Elvis kills this guy. He tries to go back home because he's really hurt, and his dad won't let him in. And then Ronnie finds him and takes him to like this boathouse out on the water this really gorgeous location it is a really nice location i want to live there that's a nice place it's very nice and then ronnie is like she takes care of him and she's like i love you and love me love me wah, wah, wah. and elvis is like i remember this part in the movie elvis is like does max know where this is and she's like no and then max walks onto the deck which has by the way i want to talk about this a really weird door in it yes it's a door <laughs> attached to a dock and it's for all intents and purposes it's just a door and a door frame like stapled to a dock that they have to open and go through and it's very bizarre mm -hmm. anyway so max fields goes through and the character dummy is trying to warn elvis trying to be like elvis get away and maxie fields shoots ronnie she dies and is redeemed <laughs> as a result uh and then dummy shoots maxie fields and then everything goes back to normal and elvis starts working at the king creole again for some reason and then his dad shows up and is proud of his son merry merry christmas happy ending the end uh yeah i think pretty much that pretty much says <laughs> it it's pretty much it yeah, so that's the movie that we're going to be talking about today. A movie that, despite your your tone, I believe we talked beforehand, you said you actually enjoyed, so... Yes, it, I actually do enjoy this movie. Uh, I think uh, as far as an Elvis movie goes, uh, this one so far has been actually enjoyable to watch, and it's been enjoyable to watch because of Elvis's performance. Elvis's performance is engaging in this. It is fun to see him go. You know, even the bits where he's doing his little song and dance thing you know that's still it's still a lot of fun um i like it yes i like it i'd watch it again there you go that's if i i'd watch it again yeah so yeah i'm just naturally sarcastic <laughs> forgive me forgive it's, me audience it's fine yeah i think i don't know you have this sense too like when you've when you're explaining the whole movie out you're like yeah there's a lot of dumb stuff <laughs> it's it, yeah it is pretty convoluted even though it's also at the same time one of the more straightforward plots it is it's actually really straightforward yeah like this one is one of the more straight and that's probably also why it was enjoyable to watch because it was a little more believable than some of the schlop they have to make up for elvis to be able to get on stage and sing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh chris turned to me my boyfriend chris turned to me and he says you know, I like how in all these movies, they never show Elvis, like, getting ready to play these songs and, like, rehearsing with the band. And I said to him, actually, in this movie, they do address that. There's a guy that comes up to Elvis and it's like, hey, I heard you rehearsing. You sound really good. So, like, this is one of the few movies where you get some preamble to the fact that he's... Sure. He knows how to sing this song with this band in the background. There's a line when he's on stage at one point where he, like, looks back to the, you know, the, the group and says, okay, this is going to be blah, blah on this. And then, you know yeah get going also uh best joke of this movie there's mm -hmm. some kind of like comedian it's the guy who introduces everybody on stage yeah and uh, he's talking to elvis about his first performance 
and uh, he's being kind of like a, a funny guy, right? And he goes up to Elvis and he says something and he goes, ha ha. And then Elvis turns and just looks at him and says, <laughs> and, and moves on. So that was my favorite joke. There's some good sassy Elvis. Yeah, there's a lot of sassy Elvis in this one. The dialogue gets a little sloppy in the end with the whole like, I love you, baby. And just the way it kind of plays out is a little little too schlappy yes it's better when it stays kind of gritty and and kind of cynical but it gets a little too yeah you know like honest at the end is trying to be all like wholesome all of a sudden and you're like, yeah that doesn't yeah. jive yeah uh so uh give us give us the names tell us the deets tell us about these people in this movie with elvis sure i want to throw in one more line where when he's talking to his principal because we'd have there's the discussion where the principal's like i'm sorry elvis but i uh, can't graduate you because you're just too much trouble. Yeah. He calls him a hoodlum, and then Elvis says, I'm not a hoodlum, but I am a hustler. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I had to be. I had to be. You see, and he goes under this whole monologue. You see, ever since my mama died, there ain't nobody yes. in the house going to take care after me and yada yada. Oh, my God, Elvis. And the principal's like, oh, my goodness. I did not know I didn't that was the case, but it doesn't change anything. Sorry. Yeah. The principal says, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were working after school. And Elvis says, it's not the after school work that bothers me. It's the before. Because <laughs> he works in a bar before going to school, too, right? So. Yes. Some crazy scheduling on his part. Yeah. Okay. So who are these people? Because we named a bunch of them during our plot summary. And let's go back and contextualize. Yeah. Uh, just in the, the 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 character names themselves, there's a lot of like E at the end. <laughs> Interesting. I don't even picked up on this. There's Ronnie, Maxie, Nellie, Charlie, Mimi, Danny. Yeah, that's right. I mean, pretty much every single character, really, that has like a first name, it's like a, it yeah. ends in an E. I don't know what that is. It's just a weird little observation. But let's start with uh, the main female, the main the, the femme fatale character. Well, not even in this case, but she's she's just like the bad girl. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn Jones. She plays Ronnie. She is best known as the original Morticia Adams in the oh 1964 Adams Family. Yes. I didn't even recognize her. She's got like a little kind of more of a pixie cut. It's like a shorter. Yeah, it's like a bob. Yeah. Uh, but she's great. She is great. Yeah, she does a great job. She also has an appearance in a secondary part in uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, which was two years Correct. before Correct, yeah. And then uh, the next girl... Uh, Elvis gets two girls in this movie. Yes. So the goody-goody is played by uh, Dolores Hart, who is returning. She was also in Loving You. Ah. She was the good girl in that, who had the farm and everything. That's right. Uh, so she's Nellie. And here, here's, okay, this is going to blow your mind. So she has 19 credits on IMDb. Okay. She was like working, 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 working. And then five years after making this movie, she leaves Hollywood and she becomes a nun at a convent in Connecticut. What the heck? And has been ever since. That's wild. Wow. And then there was, it even, so so she's still around. She's 82 now. Okay. And in 2012, there was even a Oscar-nominated live-action documentary short about her because she did, like, a whole memoir and stuff. Oh. And it was called God is the Bigger Elvis. Oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> so, yeah, she was, that's like, great. she was just making the hits, and then she just said, no, I don't want this life anymore. I'm going to quit acting and become a nun. And that's, you know, wow. good honor. Good honor. Yeah. Um, I'd like to take this moment, if I could, just before mm -hmm. we get into the rest of the characters, I want to talk briefly about... Um, how these characters were portrayed in the film through their fashion and how that um, tells you about their character. Yes. So um, fashion design in movies had still not, 
it had just started to become something that like designers worked really closely with their um, actresses and actors to design looks and brands that essentially represented the characters on film. So what I'm talking about in this movie are it's not necessarily fashion designed to these characters as much as it is fashion of the time being represented in film. So Ronnie's character is the bad girl and her fashion is representative of that role. And if you see a lot of the outfits that she wears, there's one outfit in particular where uh, Elvis goes to see uh, Maxie in his apartment for the first time. Uh, she's wearing a knitted dress. So it's it's like a wool knitted dress almost. And um, it's it hugs the body and, and conforms to the shape. And at the time, those types of dresses were reserved for women, for older women who were uh, more, what's the word? I'm, I'm struggling not to say the word fertile, but that's the word that they want me to use. So I'm going to use it. Might as well. that, that's the idea. It was the type of outfits for women who were available, who were single, and who were bad girls because it showed the full silhouette and curvature of the body, which was kind of a no-no. People were still very big on having that full skirt, cotton button-down shirt dress, which was considered more appropriate for young women. So you can see the difference in how these two women are treated as far as their character goes, just in looking at their outfits that they wear. Yes, Elvis even makes a point on one part where he, he sees uh, Ronnie, who's just idling in her car, and he says, oh, that's a nice piece of fabric you've got on there. You should get a dress made out of it. Yes, yeah. So it there was a time, um, what I'm trying to say is this probably wasn't an effort on the filmmakers to go out of their way to really design the characters in as much as it was a cultural understanding about the way what type of women dressed mm -hmm. themselves as. And so you can see the good girl, Nellie, almost exclusively wears button-down dress shirts that are shirt dresses rather that turn into full skirt you know the 1950s new look style right which was uh, appropriate for women at that time and if she isn't wearing that she's wearing a sweater or a cardigan over top of whatever other outfit she's wearing for modesty so I just wanted to make a, a quick point about um, how these two ladies are represented in the film through their outfits yes very well so let's talk about the old people. Let's talk about the old guys. The quote-unquote older actors, even though yes. we'll start with uh, Maxie Fields, played by the just fantastic Walter Matthau, who uh, this, he was just getting a start when he was in this. Um, he actually had made his debut only a few years before in the 1955 movie The Kentuckian with Burt Lancaster. And I also want to point out a movie he did the year before this called The Face in the Crowd, with Andy Griffith, which is like a really amazing kind of satire that still holds up about like this folk singer that's discovered by this talent agent. And then he like rises in fame, but he's also like self-destructive. And it's just, it's very, it feels very modern. It's one of those movies that like, it's surprisingly really good. Interesting. So just a little shout out to that one. But yeah, he's probably better known to younger folks as being uh, Mr. Wilson, the Dennis the Menace movie, and also yep. for appearing in that same year, 1993, in Grumpy Old Men with his good chum, Jack Lemmon. They made many movies together. Ah, 
Uh, and for fans of The Simpsons, a little tidbit, uh, Dan Castellaneta's original voice for Homer, like when they were still doing the Tracy Ullman shorts, mm-hmm. it was based off of Walter Matthau. Oh, that's so interesting. So it was a lot more, it was a lot more gruff, you know, when he's talking about like, let's get some frosty chocolate milkshakes. But then it eventually evolved into the, the Homer voice we have now. But yeah, that was the right. the start. Walter Matthau. Okay. Interesting. Uh, and then there is Mr. Fisher, Danny's dad, who's played by Dean Jagger, who has 132 credits. Wow. Uh, he appeared in White Christmas with Bing Crosby in 1954. He's like the army guy in that movie. Right. So it's just a lot of peppering of all kinds of roles here and there. He's a character actor. I haven't actually seen White Christmas. Oh, it's pretty delightful. Yeah. I, I have a hard time like working up the courage to watch it just because I know how badly Bing Crosby used to beat the crap out of his wife and children. There's that. So... I don't want to watch White Christmas and like I know that my experience of watching it is going to be tainted by that. Like I'm not going to be able to sit down and be filled with the Christmas spirit because every time Bing Crosby comes on I'm going to be like yeah, yeah. I mean and there's also just so many other Christmas classics that you can use as alternatives so you never really need to dip into White Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) That's like a a last resort movie if you're like Yeah, a last resort. For those who are more experienced in uh, avoiding the truth. (laughs) <laughs> there's uh danny fisher's sister mimi fisher mm-hmm. the older sister played by jan shepherd she did lots of tv work and she's gonna actually show up in another elvis film in the future it's a little tease for that because there's not too many like recurring people that do more than one we've got dolores hart yeah i've noticed so far and then jan shepherd will return in a later film uh when we get to that i'll bring it up again so the other club owner which we didn't go too much into, is named Charlie Legrand. Yep. He's, yeah, the reason that Elvis is so keen to work with him is because uh, Ronnie makes it a point of saying that Charlie's joint, the King Creole, is the only joint in New Orleans that doesn't have Maxie Field's fingerprints on it. So it's the only place that, you know, it's he's safe from Maxie's grip. Right. Uh, but of course, Maxie's going to find his way to get to him eventually. Yeah. But he's, uh, Charlie is played by Paul Stewart. Oh. Yes. Interesting um, backstory on him. He was a really good friend and associate of Orson Welles, and he actually helped get together the original 1938 War of the Worlds radio drama, and he has a part, a small part in Citizen Kane. Very cool. Ooh, and I'm glad I brought up Citizen Kane, because perfect. This just reminded me that I I wanted to bring this up. We don't talk too much about current events when we're doing this, but to give a slight time frame, one of the recent news things that came out was that uh, the movie Citizen Kane on everyone's favorite movie aggregate site rotten tomatoes which i don't put too much stock in but you know it's very popular so it, it recently dipped down from its 100 percent to a an only 99 percent wow because they they dug up an old review like a contemporary review of the time so it's not like they're cheating it's not some guy today who's like oh that thing's so good no it was a person of of that year when it came out that wasn't having it and so they found the review they added it to the registry and so it, it dipped down to 99 percent. whereas king creole as we record right now is stand strong at 100 king creole has a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes yes make of that what you will wow so you mean to tell me that elvis presley's king creole has a better score on rotten tomatoes than citizen kane mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. A recent development, but that is that is how it is now, so... Wow. Suck it, Orson Welles. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, and then the last bit part, we have like the, only the one scene with Mr. Evans, the principal, but he's played by Raymond Bailey, who played Jimmy Stewart's character's doctor in Vertigo the same year as King Creole. Oh. 
So that's another big movie for him. Nice. So uh, you've got some side characters, I'm sure, that we want to we want to talk about. Yes, two specifically. Uh, yeah, tell me about this banana girl. Yeah, the banana girl. Yeah, whose character name is Forty Nina. She's played by Liliane Montevecchi, who is a ballerina and cabaret legend out of Paris. Wow, Tony Award winner. Yes, Tony Award winner. Nice. She had gone started uh, just before in fact the same year as this she appeared as Françoise in The Young Lions which is a movie with uh, Marlon Brando and Marlon Brando apparently really like took her under his wing just to teach her the ropes of like acting because I mean he's you know he's big method actor guy yeah Uh, and also this was the weirdest thing that jumped out at me in her later career she appears in the classic Matthew McConaughey rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days in 2003 you know I just was thinking the other day isn't it so weird that Matthew McConaughey at one time in his life, played a freaking teenager in a rom-com. Like, isn't that just strange? I, I saw a clip of How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Oh, no, I'm thinking about the wrong movie. You were thinking of 10 Things I Hate About You. 10 Things I Hate About You, yes, which has Matthew McConaughey in it, doesn't it? No, that has... Um... Uh, uh, Heath Ledger. It, yes, Heath Ledger. Which is strange. Anyway, sorry. No, okay, get back to it. Matthew McConaughey, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. How, what role did she play? Uh, I, you know what? Uh, what you don't know. Am I, am I you did sh- all this research and you can't tell me who this Tony Award winning person, Matt, I'm disappointed. You found me out. I've never watched How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. It's one of my, <gasps> great, my great shames. I've seen- I don't s- think we need to watch it. So many movies. Just my but, personal opinion. That's but, fair. I listen, man. Y'all can at me in the comments. I don't like Matthew McConaughey. I just don't like him. I hate his dumb face. <laughs> he's not that he's unattractive. I don't want Matthew McConaughey to think he's unattractive. I just think that he he looks like a guy who's playing a golden retriever, but a golden retriever that's trying too hard to be smart. Hmm. You know, I I haven't seen him though in um that movie that he did. Uh, about getting um, medication for people who have AIDS. Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club. I haven't seen him in Dallas Buyers Club. He's very good in that. I did like him in Interstellar, so I'm also, you know, I'm not a diehard against Matthew McConaughey. I just hate him in rom-coms. Well, of course. I hated him in Sahara. It was such a dumb movie. That was the the low point of his career. The mid-2000s, that whole period, you might as well just wipe it off his slate because there wasn't too much good that came out of any of that. Yeah. Okay, so let's stop talking about Matthew McConaughey. We're done. This is about Elvis. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Lillian Montevecchi. She's great. That's all I wanted to say. Okay, so yeah, check her out if you can. And um, also, Dummy is... Um, a character in this movie wait so context um so shark and his gang that elvis robs the five and dime with yep we established that they have one uh, member amongst their group that they call dummy who uh, has some kind of speech uh speech issue it's not i want to i want to actually get to this sure this guy doesn't have a developmental issue this guy is perfectly capable of communicating and you can tell that by the note that he writes elvis presley about his father being with maxi fields and so this kid has been to school he can read and write and read and write well looking at his note 
He's got good handwriting, yeah. Yeah, he's got good handwriting, but he can't speak properly. He has a speech impediment of some kind that keeps him mute or nearly mute. He can't yes. do much more than, than grunt or anything like that. And I want to also note, there's a part in this film where Elvis is going to get roughed up by these guys because when he got in that fight at school, it was with one of these tough guys' brother. Mm -hmm. So these guys show up to rough up Elvis Presley, and Dummy is one of the characters that they show up with. And when this guy introduces everybody in the crowd, he says, this is so-and-so, and I'm this, I'm Shark, and this is Dummy. And when he says that, Dummy kind of steps up for himself and is like, you're not going to, I'm not stupid. Like, he, he goes to try to, you know, communicate this to this guy, and they just, like, don't say anything. Yeah. And I find that really interesting because it gives this person a type of agency that you didn't actually see very often in these films. And it's the sort of thing that you could really overlook. It was really easy in this film to suggest that Dummy has a, some sort of developmental disorder, or I don't like to call it a disorder. I think that's such a crummy way to that's true. explain people. But well, anyway, the point is they. it's really easy to overlook the fact that he's clearly like cognizant and fully functioning and fully in control of his capacities and is capable of standing up for himself and knows that people want to treat him the way they would treat somebody in those times but is still sticking up for himself and that was really really interesting and later in the film they kind of they don't give him as much agency but in the beginning, they did, and that really stuck out to me. I'm not saying this is good representation, because it isn't. Um, but I think it's a really interesting... I don't know, it's a really interesting concept. Like, they could have just not had that happen. True. They could have just run the scene without Dummy trying to stand up for himself and be like, I'm not fucking Dummy, right? But they kept it that way, and they included that. So it's interesting to kind of, you know postulate about why the directors may have done that what they wanted to say about this character by giving him a sense of agency i think that's really interesting i'm sure it was nothing nice that they were trying to do because it was you know the 19 well, i think it was still the 1950s late 50s yeah yeah still late 50s so i'm sure it was nothing nice but interesting because i i'm sure any other two-bit director uh not that this guy's two-bit director but just that any other person kind of trying to schlop together an Elvis movie maybe would have not given that person that sense of agency mm -hmm. yeah really interesting and yes Elvis helps him out is the point yeah as, as, as like the through line so that you know he treats him like a regular dude there's a part where they're splitting the money from the five and dime robbery and they're shortchanging poor, poor yeah uh, Elvis gets 30 bucks dummy gets five bucks Elvis says that's not how it's gonna go and splits up the money evenly and because of that dummy is like you did me a favor once so I'm gonna let you know that your dad is talking to Maxie Fields yeah and then in the end it's also dummy who comes and uh, shoots up Maxie Fields because he's gonna kill Elvis and I, again the portrayal of this person is not great in this movie but Unfortunately, I think neither you nor I have the credentials to really make any actual judgments about it because I don't know what it's what it's like to uh, be portrayed um, having a disability. I don't know what it's like to have a disability. I don't know anything. And again, I, I hate that word. I watched a really interesting TED Talk by a woman who um, had lost both her legs and became a model 
in a sports magazine and overcame the way the world wanted to portray her and represented herself and found some success and one of the things she did for fun was her and her girlfriend looked up synonyms for the word disabled and it's really disheartening when you do that I would extend the challenge to anyone if you want to really take a moment to think about how comfortable you are with the idea society tells us how we should think about people who have disabilities is you should go and look up the words that are synonyms for the word disability and you see how quickly how society kind of thinks underhandedly about people who have different abilities than we do not that that's I don't know what term it is that people of that nature would prefer but certainly I don't think it should be disabled because I think that word is really cruel and like this lady uh, showed, denotes a way of thinking about people who look different or behave different than us and about their role in society. It's very interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think, is that all the... Oh, wait, I actually, we didn't actually... So we talked about his character, but we, the, the character of Dummy was portrayed by Jack Greenidge, yep. who made his debut. Hey, here's another James Dean connection. Look at that. He was in Rebel Without a Cause in 1955. Yeah. Playing Moose. Crazy. It was probably one of the like hoodlums that hang around. So I've got uh, here, I'm looking at your notes and it says you've got some noteworthy factoids I want to get into. So this is uh, Elvis Presley's personal favorite out of his own movies that he made. Yes. Nice. He's, he's on record as saying that and I would be hard pressed to disagree with him because it is really good. It is really good. It's probably his finest hour as an actor. Probably, yeah. And uh, Yeah, which is a shame to say. Yeah, we've already talked about the people behind the scenes. Yeah. It's all this talent. It all converged. So... In early development, this was a James Dean movie. They they wanted James Dean for this role, you mean? Yes. Wow. When they first like um, optioned the book adaptation, it was going to be a James Dean movie. Sounds like it. Yeah. It's interesting, too. Like, you definitely get vibes. Uh, oh, gosh. I can't remember what the name of that book is now. It was written. It's, it's known for being written by a teenage girl. The Outsiders. And it's. The Outsiders, yeah. And it's about these boys that get in all kinds of trouble and stuff like that. And it is interesting to notice that that theme of youth and revolt. Um, I want to impress upon people that it's still a rather fresh theme for films, uh, for directors, for actors. Like, up until this point, making movies for kids was a thing. Making movies for adults was a thing. But making movies for... 15 16 17 18 year olds was not and so what we're seeing now with this elvis film and with rebel without a cause and all those uh youth and revolt movies is the beginning of commercialism as it begins to take hold of the youth market it's very interesting this is also you'll you'll probably see um i know for sure we're going to see it in blue hawaii i have some small talking points but you're going to start to see as these movies go on and elvis is having these roles and relationships with women you're going to notice a bigger disparity between how elvis treats young ladies that there's always uh i've noticed in in the next couple movies coming up that he starts treating young ladies separately than how he treats women yes and that wasn't a theme that was happening in the beginning of his movies yet because the idea that teenage girls were different from women had not yet effectively um, taken place in society as a commercial endeavor 
So that's why it wasn't as present in his earlier movies. And you'll see in Blue Hawaii where they they clearly delineate between young girls and women. You'll see the difference in fashion, the difference in character agency and all that kind of thing. It's going to be really cool. Excellent. So the, the, I th- And I think after this, Elvis is a man, essentially. He's no longer a teenage boy just trying to get by. He's in, in all of the roles after this. He's a grown-up. Yes. So, yeah. Because, yeah, he had just turned 23 when they, they filmed this movie. So Right. Oh, my God. Very young. And when he comes back from the army, well, he's like 25 now, 26. Yeah. So, like, old enough to play a dude with a job, just a, a, a regular guy, an adult. Yeah. I, I get the idea, too, that there was some sense that his marketing campaign, whatever that was, was starting to, you know, read the read between the lines and see that they were going to have to start marketing Elvis to no longer to young women, but to the young women that were fans of his who are now grown women. Yes. He's got to change his style and change who they're marketing towards because it's going to start to be very unseemly for Elvis to be singing and showboating around with very young girls. Right? At least out in public. What he's doing on his own time, that's a different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thing. The, his wife was 14 when they got married? When they met. I don't remember how quickly they got married, but yeah, that's yeah. that's a She was thing. very young. Very, very young. Uh, and gosh, it, it was like there were so many people at that time that married very young girls. Yes. Um, what's his name on the piano there? Uh, goodness gracious great balls of fire jerry lee jerry lewis jerry lee lewis yeah yeah married his 14 year old cousin yeah it was really common it was strange 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 but yeah i think that's all i really have to say about i don't know culturally anything that i can tie into this movie i could go on and on about the roles of the women in this and how they execute agency which they don't by the way yes and And we certainly will continue to go on and on as we get to every movie this Every is going to be it's, brought up. It's because, always prevalent, right? Yes. Because it's just, again, I always say if you are interested in understanding women's roles throughout history, it's really, really good to watch B movies because they have a more cynical representation of what they think society ought to be or is or what is the status quo of society. And women's roles within that cynical view are very well defined and very scrupulously outlined for us so very interesting to look back on and and see definitely yeah shall we move on to the music yes i forgot about the music so this is elvis's longest feature film at just under two hours in length there was a lot of songs in this movie there are 12 songs packed into they this could thing. Have, they could have cut a few they really could have cut a few yes because i you as much as this is a very good movie you could definitely pace it tighter and it could have been, you could trim off maybe 10, 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. To really keep things flowing. So um, the first one, Crawfish, I just want to say it was really fun to watch Elvis get outsung by Kitty White. Yes. So the, actually, yeah. yeah, the opening scene, <laughs> before we get the opening titles and the credits, there's like a little overture where we have the streets of New Orleans and there's a bunch of vendors that are bringing out their wares and we got people black vendors yes black vendors uh peddling their wares on the streets of new orleans and there's uh i think what they're trying to do is they're trying to frame the music of new orleans through the framing device of these characters selling their wares and singing about selling their wares um which is black exploitation but (laughs) is still uh really nice i'm glad kitty white got some some stuff in there she's um 
she's an old singer. She's well, I've got she, she's an old singer now, obviously, but yes. she uh, but she was already like a veteran by like yeah, she was established when popping up into this movie. Uh, yeah, I saw in her IMDb that she was in uh, the 1955. This is a really interesting film noir, Kiss Me Deadly. Ooh, yes, that one. Have I seen that? That's the one. So not to go on too much of a tangent, but in Pulp Fiction, you know how there's the suitcase that has like the glowing light coming out of it? Yep. That's a direct homage to the MacGuffin in Kiss Me Deadly. Ah, interesting. But unlike Pulp Fiction, there is an answer to what is in that thing. I just won't reveal it here. So you get to watch Kiss Me Deadly for yourself and check it out. Nice. But that one is a very weird film noir, almost different genre elements as it goes. But yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the songs in this movie are not well-known Elvis songs. I just, I did want to say that. Right. Of the ones that were like, Trouble is a big hit. Yeah, like Hard-Headed Women and Trouble. And King Creole actually was popular. Sure. So Hard-Headed Women, King Creole, and Trouble are like the big songs. But even as big songs, these were not very popular songs. I think Trouble was pretty popular. Trouble was the song he started his 68 comeback special with. So that was at least, it had that kind of reputation to it. Yeah. So uh, I don't like a lot of the songs on this movie. And I like a lot of Elvis songs, but I just found these songs, they sounded, a lot of them just sounded like Elvis didn't write them. Which is definitely the case. Yeah. I don't know how many of these were made for this movie specifically, but a lot of them sounded like somebody some other person you know wrote them i know one of them um as long as i have you that's an actually an old jazz song isn't it at least that's the closing number yeah yeah like so but and which is why it was interesting to see that despite that all of these songs really oozed that elvis style of singing and it was really interesting to watch him take these songs that don't sound like they were written by him but out of all the movies I've seen so far, I definitely feel like these songs absolutely sounded more like Elvis sung them than some of the songs in his other films. Sure. So I don't, I don't know. You can go by, through them one by one, but I'm not even that interested. Uh, I mean, yeah, we've, we named, those are the highlights is the one we named. Yeah, I will, Crawfish. Sure. So uh, the duet with Kitty White. Yeah. Because that's the thing is that they're, they're singing about their wares and then she's by his window. He pops his head out. He's waking up. And he starts singing about crawfish. Yeah. He did a great job. I think that's like, even in the first scene, I was like, wow, Elvis is actually enjoying his time in this movie and wants to play this character. Like you could tell he was, mm-hmm. he was really suited for the role of this. Really liked it. Uh, and then when the goons are telling him to sing something while they're hassling Ronnie at the beginning before he saves her, they, he belts out his, his high school song steadfast loyal and true yes and then every uh at the shop that they're robbing he sings lover doll mm-hmm. and then uh when maxi fields wants him to do a little song and dance he sings trouble which was his big song that's my sister's favorite elvis song oh nice she likes trouble it's yeah. a good it's a good tune and once he starts working for charlotte the grand his big like debut on the stage for them he yeah. does dixieland rock yes which is an homage to the dixieland style new orleans jazz um bananas performed by Liliane Montevecchi. Yeah, we called her the banana lady earlier. We didn't actually yeah. contextualize why we said that. She sings this whole song. She's, she's dressed wearing in bananas. Yes. She's and they're not just like Which, by the way, I wanna yes. I wanna talk about that outfit. Sure. That outfit is an homage to early minstrel plays where they would get women dressed up in banana outfits. And the banana outfit was a cabaret outfit designed 
by Josephine Baker, a black woman who was a very prominent figure in the performance world. Josephine Baker. Fantastic. Yeah. I did not know any of this, so this is good. Yeah, so the banana skirt is legendary, and it first became this fixture of black women trying to, or this black woman specifically, reclaiming that identity of, well, what they called it at the time. It's quite rude. It was called jungle music. Right. And so there was this kind of tongue-in-cheek way that she dealt with these slang terms and this representation of black women was by owning it and was by countering it by saying oh you think we're all just a bunch of you know banana loving yippies here you go here's her in a banana suit and see who's acting like a, a yippie now right and uh, it became so synonymous with burlesque and with uh, music and fashion just fabulous she was an exceptional exceptional dancer and a beacon in the field of burlesque dancing and, and stage dancing and all that kind of thing awesome yeah so i just wanted to throw that out there her so her outfit is the banana outfit is an mm -hmm. homage to that which would have been played uh in new orleans right nice very good yeah right so then we got uh young dreams young dreams which is just kind of like a ballad thing but once again like you were saying elvis sings it as if you know this is just like a staple Elvis song. He, he does a good yeah, job on these. He does, yeah. Uh, New Orleans, which is a song that I know very well. Hard-headed woman. Or New Orleans is not the one I know. King Creole is the one I know. Yes. No, New Orleans is the one I know. Jeez, I can't even remember which one it was. I think it was New Orleans, actually. They are similar in many ways. Yeah. Then we have, yeah, Hard-headed woman, King Creole. Don't ask me why, as long as I have you. Actually, so wait. Which one is the one that wins out of these 12 for you? Oh, um, I, geez, I'm going to go with, uh, I like New Orleans better. Okay. Yeah. So I was going to say, this might be the one where, I mean, there's so many songs, so this might be the one where the title song isn't necessarily the automatic winner. There's some competition. Yeah. Yeah. King Creole is not the automatic winner. Um, I like New Orleans better. But I think uh, as far as like popularity goes, Trouble is actually the winner. Trouble is the big hit, the big single that comes off of this. Yeah, it's the big one. Yeah. Awesome. So um, uh, what do you think? Should we wrap it up? I think we pretty much hit all the points we want to hit. Yeah, I, I think so. Oh, I w was one of us supposed to write an outro? Was that me? I think that was uh, me. Oh, man. Maybe I was. I don't know. Maybe we were supposed to figure okay. out something. Well, let's... <laughs> yeah, well, we still haven't ironed out the outro. We'll summarize. So what did we learn today? <laughs> so gonna... uh, today we learned that even at his best, Elvis is still a guy who rides off of the backs of black artists. <laughs> like, That's I can't... totally fair. I don't know. Like, just talking about that briefly, you know, you open this show with these black artists who could have really played a, a, an integral part in this movie, but didn't because Elvis is white. <laughs> And that's just the way it's got to be in those times. And it's a real goddamn shame because New Orleans is the epicenter of jazz. And don't at me in the comments about your Kansases and your <laughs> Chicago's and all your New York and all your nonsense. Everybody knows jazz was invented in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. You know, the book that's where it was. that this is based off of was actually set in New York. So they changed the location specifically for this adaptation. Yeah, they really shouldn't have. <laughs> If they wanted to do a whole movie about New Orleans, they should have done that. And it should have been Elvis and a cast of black people. But of course, there are reasons why that would have never happened. And those reasons sucked. 
Yes. So that's why we can't have anything nice. This is as close as we're going to get because from this point onward, it's not all downhill. There'll still be some like highlights, I'm sure, but there's never going to be a movie that tackles this type of material. It becomes less edgy in a way. Yeah. We stick to fun time Elvis in exotic locations. Yes. The next movie that comes up is G.I. Blue, so they they lean into, you know... And they leaned hard because I started watching that movie and I'll, I'll tell you guys about it in the next film, but ho- holy cow. My first thought on this movie was like, I can't believe that that's the role in the army that they told Elvis he was going to play. And then I just looked up that that was indeed the freaking role. That that was what Elvis did in the army. He actually did that. So I, color me surprised. I think that's just hilarious. Yes. A tantalizing cliffhanger. Stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned for next episode, G.I. Blues. Where Elvis has to wrangle a baby. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Among many other shenanigans. <laughs> Among many other wranglings. Yeah. So uh, thank you guys very much for tuning in. And uh, without further ado, I guess we'll say thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you very much. much.